as we continue our study through the book of Ruth this Advent season, four weeks through the Advent season, we'll be taking a different look at every chapter in the book of Ruth. Uh, We come now to chapter 2 in the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth is situated in the Old Testament, um, is a story taking place in the time of the Judges. So that's why in your, in your Bibles, uh, English Bibles, it follows right after the book of Judges. It's right there in that context. Um, and we saw in chapter 1 that it centers around this woman named Naomi. Even though it's called the book of Ruth, really the story revolves around this woman, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And we're introduced to Ruth and Naomi last week as Naomi and her husband Elimelech decide in the midst of a famine in Bethlehem to leave Israel and go and live in this place called Moab. Uh, these enemies of Israel, they decide to go there because the grass seemed greener. And they go and they settle there. But in the process of going there, uh, Elimelech, her husband, dies. And Naomi's left a widow. Now, she does still have two sons, we see. We're introduced to them. And those two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And they live together for 10 years. But eventually, after a decade, both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, both die as well. Ruth now is in a foreign country with no husband, uh, with no sons, and with these two foreign daughter-in-laws with no real hope to be able to provide for herself. Again, there's no welfare system in Moab. There's no hope that she can have to provide for herself. And there's no hope that there's anyone that can come and provide for her. So she's left with the choice to go back to Bethlehem. And her daughter-in-laws are like, well, yeah, we'll go with you. And, Ruth's, and Naomi's like, no, it's a bad idea. You've got no husbands. I'm not going to have any more children. You're not going to wait for them. Don't, don't come with me. And so Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. Uh, here's her. I think if you were looking at our community group questions last week that we sent out, uh, said Oprah uh, left Naomi. It wasn't Oprah. That's not, that's not her origin story. Orpah, uh, very easily confused. Uh, Orpah takes Naomi's advice and she's like, all right, I'm out of here. And Orpah leaves, goes back to her parents. But Ruth clings to Naomi. We saw last week, clings to Naomi. She says, no, Naomi, I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I'm going. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. Use that covenant formula that God uses with the people of Israel. And she's like, I am committed to you and I'm committed to Yahweh. We see her conversion, Ruth's conversion there. And Naomi's like, okay, whatever. She stops talking to Ruth. And they then travel back to Bethlehem. They get there. People recognize Naomi. Um, They don't mention Ruth. And Naomi mentions, my life is just hard. It's bitter. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. That's my lot in life. It's a life of ruin, a life of bitterness. I've lost it all. And we're left really with that note. I went away full, I've come back empty. And chapter one really was a verse of ruin, a verse of darkness. And many of us have walked through seasons like that. Maybe you're walking through a season like that right now. And we saw last week the reality and the honesty of that. But it ends with this little glimmer of hope. In verse 22, that they, when they arrived in Bethlehem, they arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that then sets the stage for chapter 2. So we look at chapter 2. I want us to look at three different things throughout chapter 2. First, we'll look at a man and woman of character. A man and woman of character. This is verses 1 through 3. Uh, then we'll look at an abundance of favor in verses 4 through 18. And then finally, a thrill of hope. Verses 19 19 through 23. A man and woman of character, an abundance of favor, and a thrill of hope. So the scene, again, is the scene of a barley harvest. It's hard for us, outside of an agrarian context, to understand the significance of that time in the life of a city, the life of a culture that's oriented around farming. This was the great festival. This was the great hope. If the 
harvest didn't go well, it wasn't going to go well for the people. And so this was right in the midst of it all, and that's when they show up. And we're introduced here in verses 1 through 3 and given a little bit of context. And now the third main character of this story, Naomi and Ruth, we met last week. Now we're going to be introduced to the third main character, this guy named Boaz. And as we're introduced to Boaz, we see in verse 1, we're given a few little hints about him. That he is a relative on her husband's side, on Naomi's husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. And his name was Boaz. And Ruth decides to go to his field. Because again, this was during the harvest time. And Ruth and Naomi, as they walk back to Bethlehem, they've got to be asking, in the foremost, kind of in the front of their mind, they've got to be wondering, how are we going to eat? There was certainly a desire, I'm sure, to be accepted, to find friends, to to be able to um, uh, find people to walk alongside. But at the forefront of their minds had to have been, I am hungry. I need to eat something. They didn't have jobs. They didn't come in with a savings account. They need to figure out how to eat. And it would have been too much of a humiliation for them to go and beg But gratefully, as they walked back into Bethlehem, they walked back into a country that was shaped by the law of Moses. And why was that fortunate? Well, it's fortunate because the law of Moses has specific laws that obligated landowners to make provision for people precisely like Ruth and Naomi, especially at harvest time. This is what the Old Testament, here's a couple of laws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, talking to landowners, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. That would be as you go along the stalks that may be less than your harvest. Those are the gleanings. You're not to gather all of those. Don't pick it bare. Leave the gleanings. Don't go to the edge. But you are to leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Later in Deuteronomy 24, 19, God says this, When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheath in the field... Do not go back to get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Ruth may fit every one of those categories. The resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. There were these specific laws that obligated landowners to provide for them. This was the culture and the society that they walked into. And it allows the opportunities for landowners to express generosity. And also for those who were needy, notice it wasn't given to them. They did go and work for it. And this retained a bit of dignity for them as they worked then for the food that was there. And so this is Ruth's plan. We come at the harvest, the barley harvest. I'm going to go and glean from the fields. The things that are left, the things that get brought behind. I'm going to go work and pick those uh, so that I then can have something to eat and she can also provide for Naomi. And it's there that we're introduced to Boaz. And did you hear the way that he's described in verse 1? Here's his introduction. He's a relative. I'll be more about that later, but it's significant that he's related. Um, he's also described as a prominent man of noble character. Or your translation may say worthy. He's a worthy man. Now, I think, that, I think that the CSB who translate this prominent man of noble character, I think it gets to the heart of what that word worthy means. Because if we think worthy in the sense that maybe had influence or authority or wealth or power, I don't think that's what it's talking about because in the very next chapter, that same word is going to be used to describe Ruth. And she was none of those things. But she was a woman of noble character. I think that's what it's drilling at here describing Boaz as he was a man shaped after God's heart. A man of noble character. Um, And we're not only introduced to Boaz, the author here at the very beginning is like, you need to pay attention to this guy when he walks onto the scene. 
Here's Boaz, right? Here's the little, the cue for us to, to make a note whenever he steps on. But we also learn more about Ruth here at the very beginning. Not just a man of noble character. We learn a little bit more about Ruth. Because Ruth, we see, again, the Moabitess asked of Naomi. That word, that, she, that, that reality that she is from Moab keeps flashing like a neon sign through the book of Ruth. The author doesn't want us to forget it. Describing not only the fact that she's not from Israel, she's a Gentile, but specifically that she's from Moab. This country that was an enemy to Israel had oppressed Israel. And that she was, in all sense of circumstances, uh, should be looked down and excluded from the people of Israel. In fact, there were laws that forbid Israelites from marrying Moabite women because earlier they had drawn them away from the, Israel, from the God of Israel and to these idols. And the author is going, this is where Ruth is from. And we'll come back again throughout our study over the next couple of weeks as to why that's so important. But she's from Moab. And notice what she asked Naomi. Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? All right, remember what we know about Naomi so far. She's already left her familiarity. What she knew, her country, her home, is gone. A lot of us don't know what that's like. To go and live in a place that's not our home. I was talking to a friend of mine that was from another country this past week and just asking him, what's it like? It's a different language, a different culture. What's it like living here? And the word he kept saying was the word belong. As I just feel like I don't belong here. I don't know what that's like. That's what Ruth did in leaving her familiarity. She walked in a place, again, where it would have been flashing in a neon light. She doesn't belong. But she left her familiarity. She left her family. Her mom, her dad, she had brothers and sisters, her friends. She left that in Moab. And she left her future. When she decided to go with Naomi, that was in essence a commitment to say, all right, I'm done. I'm not going to marry anybody. There's no way I'm going to find somebody in Israel. There's no prospects from Naomi anymore. There are laws forbidding people in Israel to marry me. She signed up for that because of her commitment to Naomi and her loyalty to God. We see so much of Ruth already, but now we see it taken a step further. Because she says, I'm going to go and work in the fields. Now she's placing herself at risk in order to help her mother-in-law. Again, think about what she's going to do. A young woman walking into a field with all of these workers. These men who were there. Remember what time it is. It's the time of the judges. This is a time of moral and social chaos. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There were men who had been prowling, looking for young women to take advantage of and abuse. And Ruth was going, I'm going to place myself in the midst of that setting. I'm going to put myself at risk so that I can help provide for my mother-in-law who is in need. She may have caught the young eye of the wrong man. But also as a foreigner, she could have been open to constant ridicule and mocking and derision. There in the midst of all these Israelites, she was from Moab. And she said, no, I'm going to go there on my own alone and work. Because I'm going to make sure I do everything I can to provide for Naomi. She volunteered. I think we see her strength of character in that decision. And we see her commitment to support Naomi, whatever the risk might be to herself. I think all those reasons are why Boaz, the next chapter, looks at her and she says, you are a worthy woman. You're a woman of noble character. 
Oh, friends, this is, this is an aside, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it's so helpful. Um, this woman of noble character, or your ear might start perking up as you begin to think of maybe that description of this woman, this wife in Proverbs 31. This is how that section begins in Proverbs 31.10. Who can find a wife of noble character? Now, in the Jewish Bible, this is what's free. In the Jewish Bible, this is in my notes, but it's, it's so helpful, I think. In the Jewish Bible, they have a different order in the Old Testament. There's nothing we're missing in the order that we have. We just, in a, as a Western mind, we think chronologically. So our Old Testament is set chronologically. But the Old Testament, in the, the Jewish Old Testament, the Old Testament that Jesus read was a different order. It was made up in three chunks. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Often just shorthand the law and the prophets. That's why in the New Testament, if you ever see that phrase, law and the prophets, and it's capitalized, that's a shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. Or you may see law, prophets, and psalms. Again, it's shorthand for the entire of the Old Testament scripture. And in the Old Testament order, do you know where the book of Ruth comes? Right after the book of Proverbs. You read the description of a Proverbs 31 woman, and then you turn the page and you're introduced to Ruth. I think Ruth is the expression of a wife, a woman of noble character. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're a young woman here and you're looking for role models, there's all sorts of people this world's going to try to put in front of your face. Let me tell you, you have a role model in Ruth to look to. She's an expression of what it means to be a woman of strength, determination, compassion, a woman of noble character. I think she's held up as a, an image for that. We learn more about her. And as we meet these, this man and woman of noble character, we, we're beginning to wonder here in verses 1 and 2, what would happen if they were to meet? Imagine if you're reading this for the first time, well, Boaz seems great. Ruth seems great. What if they cross paths? Well, then we get to verse 3. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters, and she happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Oh, friends, it was no chance. She did not just happen to be there. In fact, the author here in the Hebrew, literally, the Hebrew expression here translated is the happenstance that happened to her was that she was in Boaz's field. The author is trying to say, hey, pay attention to what's happening here. And as we'll see throughout the rest of Ruth, that the author does not think that this was not fortune. This was not just luck. That God, and one of the things, again, we learn in the book of Ruth is God's providence in the most ordinary moments in our life. He is involved and he is acting and he is orchestrating it all for our good and for his glory. This great story of redemption that he is not passive in or reacting to, but he is writing. He is the author of salvation. And here he navigated not just the time in which Naomi and Ruth returned back at the time of the barley harvest, but to the very field that Ruth would go into. It was the field that Boaz owned, who was of Elimelech's family. Oh, friends, just because God may not speak audibly, he can, but I haven't heard him speak audibly, and you probably haven't either. But just because he doesn't speak audibly doesn't mean um, that he is not involved in our life, that he is not working in our life. Just because you may not see miraculous events does not mean that he is not doing miraculous things behind the scenes. John Piper is a pastor and author, and he said something like this. I can't entirely. It was some, the, the, the book of Hebrews gives me help as a pastor. I've mentioned this. He, he quotes Psalms, and he's like, someone somewhere said, and then like quotes it. So um, John Piper said at some point something like this. But here's, here's the point. It may not be exact, so don't quote me, but here's the idea. 
God is doing a million things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. I think that's true in what we're getting at here in the book of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi had no idea what God was doing in it all. Oh, but friends, one of the things we're meant to step back and be encouraged is see the way that God's involved in our life. And it's meant to build up our trust in every moment to see that He is working. Here in Ruth, we get the curtain pulled back and we see the quiet and sovereign hand of providence, God's rule and involvement in every area of our life, guiding, orchestrating, and writing this story of redemption. And that's meant to strengthen our trust in the Almighty. Even as we look back at our stories, if we look back at our past, we may regret or wonder what may happen. Friends, to trust ourselves to a providential and sovereign God means that He is using all of it. It's not wasted, but He's using it somehow. We may not know until we stand face to face with Him, but we can trust He's using it all for our good and for His glory. And even though you may not be able to trace His hand, it does not mean His hand is not moving. This is what we see here as we are introduced to this man and woman of character. But then we see an abundance of favor, verses 4 through 18. Ruth and Boaz meet, and in this story, it's just like favor upon favor upon favor upon favor. This abundance as Boaz comes and blesses Ruth, provides and protects her. Now that word favor, it pops up three times in this text. You see again, this is what Ruth was looking for in verse 2. I want to go work behind someone with whom I find favor. And later we'll see it's that she finds favor with, uh, with Boaz. And then she's going to continue to receive favor from Boaz. This understanding, the sense of grace, of generosity, of favor and blessing. It's an abundance from, uh, from Boaz. So let's just go through quickly what all we see here. Uh, the first thing we see in verse 4 is that Boaz is someone who is a landowner and he's godly. You notice how he walks into the field? What's his, what's his uh, greeting here? When he arrived, he looked at his workers, he looked at the harvesters, and he goes, the Lord be with you. And they respond, the Lord bless you. He greets people in the field like he would greet people in a church. There is no separation between his work and his faith. He was a fully integrated, holistic man. That was an incredible help too for us, I think, as we think we don't leave God at the door when we go to work. We bring him with us. If you're a, a boss a leader in your organization, a teacher, a parent, if you have some sense of authority, you bring God into that position. Like Boaz did here, the Lord be with you. Verse 4, he's godly. But then we see in verses 5 through 7, he notices Ruth. Now, I don't think he notices her in the sense of romance yet. Maybe he did, but I don't think so. Because the thing that he notices is the way in which she's working. This is also the way his servant responds, right? Verse 5, he asked his servant, who's in charge of the harvesters, whose woman is this? Servant respond, well, she's the young Moabite woman. Again, there's the flashing sign who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. And she asked, will you let me gather fallen grain on the bundles behind the harvesters? And she came, has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Again, you see it's Naomi's, it's Ruth's work ethic that's highlighted here by the worker. She also asked for permission, even though the law was there, and she had the right to be able to go. She didn't come entitled. She still asked if she could receive grain. And she worked as hard as anybody. And I think that's what Boaz noticed. Who's that woman? She's working harder than anybody here. And so then Boaz turns after he recognized her and noticed her. He then addresses her in verse 8. And she says, hey, I see you and you can stay here. That's what he tells her in verse 8. Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field. 
Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. You have to go different fields every day wondering what these new relationships are going to be like. Stay here and also stay close to my female servants. Grafting her in to be able to give her some sense of safety. But he gives her even more protection in verse 9 whenever he says, See which field they are harvesting and then follow them. Because I've ordered the young men not to touch you. So not only do you stay with these women, he's also speaking to the men that are there going, hey, don't touch this woman. He protects her. Then in the end of verse 9, we see not only does he offer protection, but he also offers provision. She'd been working. She was thirsty. There was a long line at the water fountain. And he says, here, here, Ruth, when you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars that the young men have filled. Here's water. You've been sweating. You've been working. And he provides water for her. So she recognizes what happens. Again, she wanted to find favor. She recognized she found it in verse 10. She falls face down, bowed to the ground, said to him, Why have I found favor with you? So that you notice me, although I'm a foreigner. And noticed what Boaz recognized about her. It was not her looks. We don't even know what she looked like. We don't know if she was beautiful. We don't know if she wasn't. Her, how she looked wasn't mentioned in the story. But what stood out to Boaz... Look at, look at there at verse 11 and 12. He said, Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. What kind of woman does that? For Naomi, that Boaz knew was somebody in his family he was related to. He had this relation to her. He's like, you've, you've cared for. You're, you've, you've shown kindness to her. He notices her character. But then look at verse 12. He also notices her faith. Oh, may the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Friends, what an incredible invitation we see even in the Old Testament. That there was this law that forbid Israelite men from marrying Moabite women, but it wasn't because they were less than. They were women created in the image of God. It was a protection against those people that would pull Israelites away from the worship of God into idols. And so here, I think Boaz is going to rightly recognize, what do you do with the Moabite who isn't pulling Israel away from their God, but has hidden herself under the wings of God, who is poor, who is a widow, who is in need? I think Boaz rightly understands the heart of God to go, this wasn't who the law was protecting me from. And he then shows her kindness and will later lead to their marriage. Boaz noticed her character and her faith. Again, if you're here, maybe you're a young man. I've already spoken to the young woman. I can now speak to young men, right? Trends have passed me up. Celebrities' names I don't recognize anymore. Like, I am in a new generation. It's like just starting to click with me. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this last night. And we're like, we're, like it's happening. It's happening. We're in our mid-30s, right? We're millennials, which for, forever meant young. And now, like, we're the old one. We have things that young people make fun of us about. Like, that's where we are. And so I can speak to the young men and young women now because I'm an old man. And to the young men, this is also helpful. If you're here, you're not married, what you are to look for in a woman, what you are to look for in a wife. Again, Proverbs 31 tells us, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting. But a woman of noble character, who can find? That's what's highlighted with Ruth, her character and her faith. 
Oh, and, and friend, if you're looking for a spouse, look for those things. Look for their character. Look at their faith. Will they draw you closer to Jesus or bring you further away from them? Boaz is such a helpful image here of that. And again, notice the words that he says, may the Lord reward you and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God. That's why, again, I think this is Proverbs 31 because the end of the chapter, you know how it ends. In Proverbs 31, 31, it says, give her the reward of her labor. I think Boaz has that in mind. And that she is to be rewarded for how she has lived. So again, in, in regard to this, Boaz speaking these words of dignity and encouragement, speaking these words of worth to a woman who had been disregarded, who had left everything, who I'm sure felt marginalized, who felt on the fringes of that society, who walked into Bethlehem and saw the people whispering and knew that it was about her. And here's a man that spoke worth to her, spoke, spoke of her dignity, of her value. Again, just another helpful way in which Boaz an example to us to speak words of life to people, to see the grace of God in their life and to speak that out loud, both to them and behind their backs. We want to gossip in good ways about people, speaking about the good things we see in their life, not only to them, but to others. What would it be like if that's the kind of gossip that filled this church, that we talked about all the goodness we see in one another to other people? You want to talk about countercultural in a world today. Boaz speaks those words of worth and dignity. And Ruth again sees it in verse 13. She recognizes her favor again. My Lord, I found favor with you, for you've comforted and encouraged your servant, although I'm not like one of your female servants. She knows she's different, yet she still has now this promise of favor. She was looking for favor, she found favor, and she's promised future favor here with Boaz. She sees it all. And Boaz, again, continues. This would have been enough. What incredible favor he had shown her. But he doesn't stop. Look at verse 14. He's now an incredible host. Mealtime comes, and Boaz looks at her. I don't know if Ruth brought her lunch. She probably didn't. She probably didn't have food that she brought with her. Moaz, during mealtime, looks at her and goes, hey, come and sit with her. Come over here. Have some bread. Dip it here in the vinegar sauce or in the wine. Take this meal. And so she sat beside the harvesters. So not just the female servants. She's now been invited into those that work with Boaz. Into this group of people. And they have a meal. And he offered her roasted grain. So again, look at Boaz. Look at what kind of leader he is. He's a servant leader who eats with his workers. He doesn't see himself as too good or far removed from those that work for him. He eats with them and he offers, he serves them. He's generous. He's abundant. He's not a stingy boss. Because look at how much he serves. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. Again, friends, just what an incredible encouragement, especially maybe if you're here and you own your own business, you're a boss, you're a manager, you're a leader. What kind of boss, manager, or leader, or owner are you? Look to Boaz. Be one that's marked by generosity, by abundance, by one in which you serve those that you lead. Because all this, I think, is again, language is meant all throughout, we'll see it throughout the book of Ruth, it's language is meant to point us to Jesus. I think that phrase there in verse 14, she ate, was satisfied, and had some left over, our mind is meant to run to another instance of grain, another instance of bread in the New Testament. When people were hungry and they came to Jesus and he multiplied fish and loaves and fed the 5,000, it said they ate until they were satisfied and they had some left over. 
They had to gather it up in these bushels, in these 12 baskets, all that was left. There was this abundance. There wasn't just enough to be able to get by. There wasn't even just enough to be satisfied. There was enough that was left over. There is this abundance of favor that continues to grow as he gives her a meal and gives her more that she needs. And then in verses 15 and 16, he gives instruction to not only protect her and not humiliate her, but also to provide food for her. Look, he says, when she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered the young men, hey, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Don't let her just pick up the stalks that are left or the ones that fall on the ground. Let her come from the bundles that you are collecting. And don't humiliate her. Don't mock her. We're going to have some words. We're going to throw hands if I hear that you're, you're humiliating her. There's going to be a conversation. Don't even just let her come to the grains. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. You see the abundance here. Boaz is like, man, pull out what you're getting and leave it behind for her. Provision and protection. Boaz is showing this incredible favor and kindness to her. And this is, finally, she gathers then what she needs, verse 17 and 18, and she goes back to meet Naomi. So Ruth gathered the grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She's picking up dog foods, uh, dog bags of food. Um, They're thrown over her shoulder. 26 quarts. And she goes back into town. She meets her mother-in-law. And when her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned, she brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. So she not only brought the food from the harvest that she had, but also the leftovers. And so you imagine Naomi. She sees Ruth go off in the morning to go work in the field. Naomi's aware of the danger of the time. She doesn't know what field she's going to go to. Doesn't know if she's going to run into any cross men. She may wonder if Ruth is going to come back at all. And when she does come back, how does she return? Full? I don't know when the last time Ruth had a full belly was. She comes back full with leftovers and food for the future. So you imagine Naomi's response. Who did you meet? Right? What did, what, who did you run into? And there's so much here. Again, we've mentioned it. What we can glean by looking to Boaz. Again, intentional pun there. What we can glean from him. I felt good about the pun, but it's, we'll just move on. What we can glean from Boaz. What are the things as we walk through? What are the things that we can take for ourselves? Again, just to highlight these, we mentioned them, but I just want to come back and double click on them. He integrates his work in faith. He doesn't have a compartmentalized life. All of his life falls under the rule of God. Oh, friends, may it be so for us. He provides for the hungry and protects the vulnerable. He uses his influence to be able to serve, care for, and protect those who don't have influence. Again, we see that written into the very law of God. He uses his authority well. And he stands out in a time and a culture where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He was was markedly different. And this is, again, I think a Proverbs 31 man. Before the woman is addressed in verses 10 through 31, uh, the uh, Proverbs 31 man is addressed. In verses 8 and 9, Proverbs 31 says this, Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. That's the kind of man that Boaz was. Proverbs 31, just like Ruth was the kind of woman that that Proverbs 31 pictured as well. A man and a woman of noble character. He's a servant leader. 
He doesn't lead from the front to everyone come to him, removing himself, looking down on everyone else. He serves um, those that work for him. He hosts a meal in abundance. He's a generous boss. He speaks words of dignity and respect, and he practices hospitality. He takes an ordinary lunch, and he turns it into a memorable moment. The author of Ruth doesn't waste words. There's often times that we're going to want to know more, especially next week. We'll see in chapter 3. It's like we want to know more of what is happening. But the author is very choice with their words. And so everything they mention is of importance. And they mention this regular meal. And that kind of hospitality can transform a relationship and a moment. And would we use our lunches, our dinner tables, our living rooms in the way that Boaz did? Now, friends, but this isn't just a story of Boaz and as we look to him. We're also meant to look through Boaz to something greater. And that's where we see not just this abundance of favor... But we also see this thrill of hope in verses 19 to 23. This thrill of hope. So when Ruth walks back in with all sorts of food hanging off her shoulders, Naomi looks, verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today and where did you work? What kind of man did you find? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Naomi doesn't know yet. And Ruth doesn't know the significance of who Boaz is. So when Ruth answers, you see in verse 20, um, on verse 19, Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, well, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Now, we're not going to get into all of it here. We're going to dive more next week. There's going to be this theme called a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer that's central to this book. And it's, it's a huge image in the Bible itself. We're going to look more at that next week. But in order to be a redeemer, there ha- had to be a relative. It had to be family. And so that's why whenever Naomi hears that Boaz was the one that she worked in the field with, Naomi knew who Boaz was. Naomi knew that he was of the clan of Elimelech, her former husband. She knew that he was a relative, and she knew that this opened a door of possibility that maybe now there could be this kinsman redeemer, this family redeemer that could step in and provide for Ruth in a way that could also provide for her. And when everything had seemed so dark, for the very first time, Naomi sees this small glimmer of light in her life. Even though God had been orchestrating it all up until this point, Naomi hadn't seen it. And she hears that word Boaz, and there is this thrill of hope that rises in her heart. There's a possibility for me. I may still have a future. Ruth still may have a future. What felt like only ruin in chapter 1, only bitterness in chapter 1, now there is this glimmer and thrill of hope. And I can just imagine, I want to think about how Naomi then responded to Ruth. I don't know how she responded. She hears that word Boaz, and Naomi thinks she's just, I mean, Ruth thinks she's just transferring information. Oh, the the name of the person I worked with is Boaz. This was his name. You asked, I told you. Naomi responds, though, in verse 20, and she said, Oh, may the Lord bless him, because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. For the man is a close relative He's one of our family redeemers. I imagine this sense of just almost overwhelmed emotion as Naomi hears. And again, in the midst of the ruin, in the midst of her darkness, in the midst of a stump in her life that feels like all that she had had has been cut. 
There is now, for the very first time, this hope, this little sprig uh, uh, growing up from the stump, this little bit of hope, this light. Oh, may the Lord bless him because he's not abandoned his kindness to the living of the dead. There's this sense of worship in which Naomi, through the kindness of Boaz, interprets the kindness of God. Oh, Boaz was kind to you. Oh, and God has been kind to me. He has not abandoned his kindness to the living or to the dead, even to my family. This sense of worship erupts in Naomi's heart. And then I imagine her turning to Ruth, because I'm sure Ruth is like, uh, okay. She turns to Ruth, and I imagine with this wry smile, leans close to her, and she says, oh, no, 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 this man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. You begin to see the wheels turning in Naomi's head. One scholar said that if Boaz was a young minister, Naomi would have made plans for Ruth to join the choir and sit in the front row, right in front of the pulpit the next week. <laughs> so that Boaz would notice her and would begin to move from there. Again, we'll see this in the chapter next week. But there is a problem that's introduced here that won't resolve until chapter 4. Notice that he is not the family redeemer. He is one of our family redeemers. There's going to be some issues we'll see that will get resolved, but it's introduced there. The main emotion though right now is one of hope. Oh my goodness, in the midst of darkness, there is some light. In the midst of death, there is still some hope, some life, this hope for new life. Oh, may the Lord not abandon. He has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. I think that, that phrase is really, I think, the whole theme of this chapter. It's highlighting the kindness of God. Expressing the kindness of Boaz. And that word kindness, it doesn't mean nice. Oh, it was kind. It was nice of them to do that. That word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. It's one of the, the biggest words in the Old Testament. It is used to describe God's relationship with His people. And one English word just won't do to relate it. That's why some old translations used to translate it as loving kindness. Steadfast love. Exodus 34, verse 6, when God reveals Himself to Moses and says His name, He is a God um, who is uh, overflowing in grace, is, who's, uh, who is filled with steadfast love and faithfulness. That word steadfast love is that same word here as kindness. It is God's committed relationship to his people. His love, his loyalty, his promise to not go anywhere and his affection that won't move. His kindness. Naomi thought he had abandoned her. All that she walked through, the ruin that she walked through, she came to the conclusion, God has left his promise, oh, was it true for me? Maybe it's true for these other people, but it's not true for me. Naomi then sees and rightly interprets here, oh, God's kindness has not abandoned her. He has not left her. And notice for Naomi, she sees that through the actions of Boaz. So she sees Boaz's generosity and kindness to Ruth and goes, praise God for his kindness, but also this shows me God's kindness to me. Or this is also just such a help. 
Because it's easy for us, I think, to just get caught up in the things that we can see and go, oh, this person did this, or God, this person uh, stepped in and provided for us in this way, or this person did this. And we may just interpret the things that we can see. Naomi, though, is helpful in helping us take one step further and to see God as a God of providence, as one who's orchestrating all of this. And through the generosity and the provision and the kindness of people in our lives, we are to rightly worship God who is expressing His kindness through them. And so whenever someone comes and steps into your life and offers something of generosity to you, maybe there was a bill you couldn't pay that got paid. I was talking to somebody this morning. They said that their car broke and it was going to cost thousands of dollars. And their neighbor was like, oh my goodness, that's ridiculous. Buy the part, I'll do it for you for free. What kindness. Oh, but friends, we are to take a step further and also see God's kindness expressed through them. Naomi is helpful here and help us rightly see the world in this God of providence. And that we see his kindness expressed to us. And especially, again, if you're walking in a season of darkness or a season of ruin like chapter 1 last week. You be reminded of God's kindness to you like Naomi was. Through the kindness of Boaz, Naomi sees the kindness of God. Friends, how can we be convinced that God hasn't abandoned his kindness to us? How can we be convinced, maybe as our life falls apart and maybe we feel like we've gone away full and come back empty, how can we be confident that God hasn't abandoned his kindness? Well, friends, all we have to do is go back 2,000 years ago and look at a little child in a manger. And we see that God, who looked at the world that he created, and he saw that world turn away from him, And he saw sin and the curse enter into and damage, again, as Kenny said earlier, every aspect of that creation, even into our hearts. And he saw people rebel against him. God, in the midst of that, a God of holiness, a God of perfection, a God of justice, does not look at that and go, all right, well, I mean, I gave them a chance. They turned away from me. They deserve it. God looked at a world who had run away from him and what he did seen through that first Christmas is he came and didn't leave us to our own devices. He came to run after us. He pursued us. He looked at a story of suffering, a world of sorrow, and he stepped into it. He entered into the story that he was writing. And he, like Boaz, was not one removed from those in this world, but he stepped into the midst of it. So much so, the Bible shows us that Jesus is described as a man of sorrows. He is a suffering servant. This is one of the great hopes we have, one of the great comforts we have as Christians. You look at all the other gods, all the other religions. Our God is the only one that has scars, friends. He knows the pain of this world. And we may not know all the answers of what God is doing. We may not see the hand of providence and know the reasons why. One day we will meet to glory. Oh, friends, we may, like Job, on this side, not know what is happening in our life and what God is doing. But here's what we can know. That God is not a God who is removed from the pain, but He stepped in the midst of it. That he, as an expression of his love, gave us the greatest gift this world has ever seen. He gave us himself. Can you think of a gift that you've given or received? Can you think of a gift that you've received that helped express the relationship you have with that person? 
that showed you their love towards you? Is there a gift that pops into your mind? I think back a few years ago, it was 2020, things were locked down, time on our hands. Leah comes to me and she said, Caleb, I want to watch every single one of the Marvel movies with you. (laughs) What a gift. (laughs) A wife of noble character, who can find? And we sat down and we watched all those movies. And I knew that she didn't really want to. But I saw after phase one, she started to like it a little more and more. And by the end, she became a fan. But I saw in that gift, it's lighthearted, but in that gift, I genuinely felt an expression of love for her in that gift. And friends, I'm sure you can think of other ways in which there are gifts you've received that have expressed the love from another. Oh, friend, there is no gift like the gift of that child 2,000 years ago. And it is an expression of his love for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He was sent and given as an expression of his love. And friends, in those moments of darkness, in those seasons of ruin, remember the gift that he's given you that can never be taken, the gift of himself. That he has come. And what we find, like Naomi, What was the hope for Naomi in the midst of ruin and darkness and despair? What did she find? She found a redeemer. And again, we'll see the significance of that next week. Friends, for us, it's no different. In our season of ruin and despair and darkness, you know the hope that we have? It's the hope of a redeemer. And that he has given us himself. And in him, given us every blessing that we could imagine. An abundance of favor overflowing to us. This is the God that we serve, that Boaz is meant to point us to. So we're not only meant to look to Boaz, but we're meant to look through Boaz to a greater one who would come and bring an abundance of favor. This is the New Testament in Ephesians 1 verse 3 describes it this way. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, who has shown us favor with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. There is nothing that he has held back to us in his son. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he has lavished on us. He is a God of abundance. I think that's why there's that image in Psalm 23 that David gives us. He says, my cup overflows because God has not given us just enough. He has not given us even enough to be satisfied. He has given us more that we need through himself, through his son, Jesus Christ. Our cup overflows. And that's why, again, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul describing that first birth says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... For your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That God is not a stingy God. He is not a miserly God. But he has poured onto us the greatest blessings that we can imagine through his son. And that might mean that in seasons of darkness and despair, that doesn't mean that everything's just going to get better. Friends, it means we've got to see what the blessing is, what the favor is. The favor is in Christ. The favor is Himself. The gift is God. It's not stuff. We've got to change the way in which we see this. And that then gives us this incredible hope. 
This incredible hope to be able to walk like Naomi in those moments of darkness. And as we look back to that first Christmas, we can then say with the same confidence Naomi has, oh, he has not abandoned his loving kindness to me. He is still God with us. And he will walk alongside me, my God with scars, until one day all of mine will be healed. And I think that's why as we close, I want to close with this quote from Corey Ten Boom, Holocaust survivor. I think she gets it exactly this and this hope that we have in our Redeemer. Again, her family was killed in World War II. She spent years in a concentration camp. She said this, No pit is so deep that God is not deeper still. For with Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains. And the very best is yet to be. From the hope that we have in those seasons of ruin, as no matter how dark the pit may be, the best remains because our God has clung to us and he will never let us go. He is with us and the very best is yet to be. There is a real and living hope to know that one day our Redeemer will come and he will come again and when he comes, he will make all things new. And friends, a billion years from now, I think cancer will be hard to remember exactly what it is. It's going to be a vague memory that will be swallowed up in the glory of God. And it's the hope that we can have. God is with us. He's going to make sure that we get there. When we walk in that inheritance, that's going to be kept for us and guarded for us as we then see face to face our great Redeemer, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh God, we are so grateful for your kindness and that you have not abandoned your kindness to us. Lord, would you help us see your relationship, your commitment, your loyalty, your faithfulness, your steadfast love, your loving kindness. Lord, in the midst of it all, would you help us? Help us in those seasons of darkness to see the light of the world who will never leave us or forsake us. And to see the price that was paid for our redemption. The cost that was given to be able to give us forgiveness and to give us a future. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.